Okay, we're going to get started. Um, and if you recall, last week I said something about adjusting our time if it was not convenient for everybody. Well, my, my wife bounced all over me about that, and she said 4.15 would work a whole lot better than 4 o'clock. And uh, I should have thought about that and mentioned it at the end of the session last time. But uh, next week, would it bother you guys too much if we make it 4.15? As long as your wife will agree with that. Okay, now look. Well, she, she, will, she will be here in just a minute because I saw, I saw her car pull in. Okay. Okay, next week, next two sessions, we'll start at, uh, at 5.15, and, uh, 4.15, and that may make us late for dinner, but since it's right across the hall over there, it won't bother us too much, right? We have a very special guest here today. Edith Ivey is a good friend. She's from the Presbyterian Church, and uh, I talked to Edith last week. We were at the play together, and uh, I told her about this series, and she wanted to come, and I am just thrilled to death. Edith Ivey is uh, a professional actress, stage and screen, um, a wonderful person. She's a fine tour guide. Uh, several of us went to Ireland under the direction of Edith Ivey, and she just did a fantastic job, and we got to know her very, very well uh, over a period of a couple of weeks. And uh, uh, Edith, I am thrilled to death that you took time out of your life today to, to visit our church. And please come back next week. Thank you very much. appreciate it. And here's Martha. Where's the rest of your group, honey lamb? They're coming. They're coming. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah, we're going to start. Okay. Um, and, and, and since Martha is here, I'm going to share with you thought for today. Words of wisdom from Proverbs. Now, let me add very quickly. Martha and I have been married for 51 years. And never has she been quarrelsome. Never have I had to live on the corner of the roof. But there will be a time. <laughs> but I, um, I, I ran across that the other day, and just wanted to share it with you. Do you remember? Um, oh, it was. It's been 50 years ago, I guess. There was a comedian that picked up little words of wisdom like that, and he always said, "It's in the book." It's in the book. Well, that's, it's in the book, in Proverbs. <laughs> okay. All right, enough of that. A little words, a few words of review just to be sure we're all starting on the same, the same page. Basic premise for this lesson series. Keep it in mind. Four weeks. God is smarter than us. Now, I'm sure that all of us in this room would agree with that, but uh, we know that there are some people in the world that would want to eliminate God completely, and I did not intend that to be any political statement at all. Uh, there are uh, scientists and uh, people that consider themselves geniuses that think that we don't need God. And uh, uh, th those people miss the boat as far as I'm concerned. God loves us. God has a plan for us. God's plan will not fail. Now, if you stay with me for four weeks and you come away after that was about four weeks, session, and you're not convinced that God has a plan, and God's plan will not fail, I have failed. But uh, I just want to keep reminding us of that, because if there is one overall concept that I'm teaching here from the, the and, uh, prophets and proverbs, it's that God has a plan for us, and it is demonstrated over and over again as you study the Bible as a book of prophecy. 
Uh, I never want to clarify one point last week that you, you might have been confused by. I hope not. Um, we talked about the Babylonian exile lasting for 70 years, and that's exactly what the scripture says uh, several places in our Bible, and that uh, typically is the term that we use. Um, but that's the time between the fall of the temple in Jerusalem and the completion of the second temple in Jerusalem. That's 70 years. But we know that some Jewish captives, uh, after the Babylonians invaded, um, were hauled off into exile before the temple fell. Now, Daniel was one of those that was hauled off. We think that Daniel was in the original captives that were taken to Babylon, and that occurred around 605 B.C. Um, and uh, we don't need to get into the details of why that uh, uh, the uh, the invasion took period uh, over a period of years, but it did. Also, we talked about last week the fact that, that some uh, of the Jewish people, especially the Jewish scholars, stayed in Babylon after they were originally allowed to return because that became the center of Hebrew uh, scholarship and thinking at that time. Babylon did. So we know that Ezra didn't return until 458, and Nehemiah didn't return until 455. So uh, I just wanted to clarify that in case you might have been confused about it. The Babylonian exile did last for a long period of time, perhaps 150 years or more. Okay. Last week, we talked about prophecies relating to the exile and especially the New Covenant. Now, today we're going to talk about Isaiah. We're going to spend quite a bit of time. We'll talk, we'll talk about Isaiah, also Daniel and, um, and, and Micah just a little bit. But the reason I wanted to cover the prophecies relating to the exile and the New Covenant first is because they're so important. Not that the coming of the Messiah wasn't important, but I wanted to cover the exile and especially the coming of a New Covenant first because that led the way for the coming of the Messiah that we'll talk about today, the prophecies relating to that. And I pointed out last week, I hope you got this message, the New Covenant was an amazing revelation. When you think about the Old Covenant that had been in place for hundreds and hundreds of years, all of the Hebrew Scriptures and the, uh, everything that they had been taught was related to one covenant, the agreement that Abraham had with uh, with God, I will have no other gods before me, and uh, and and if you will agree to do that, I will agree to bless you as my holy people. That was the the old covenant, and the idea of coming up with something new to replace that old covenant had to be extremely challenging, and I'm sure that it was discussed and argued a long time before the prophets finally came up with the need for a new covenant. Okay, enough said. Uh, background for, for Isaiah. Um, Isaiah's ministry began in uh, 739 B.C., somewhere along that, that time. Um, and that was before the, the fall of Assyria, not too long before the fall of, not Assyria, uh, uh, Israel, the northern kingdom. Um, and uh, about 143 years before the fall of Jerusalem, as we discussed last week. So Isaiah, uh, Isaiah frames in before the fall of, of, um, uh, of Israel, the first king of the northern kingdom. Um, and during that period of time, um, uh, especially prior to Isaiah coming into his ministry, 
both of the kingdoms had experienced uh, a number of years of some prosperity and relative peace. Um, but all of this time, they were, especially the northern kingdom, was intermarrying with the Gentile people that were in the area. When they intermarried, they typically picked up the worship of these false idols. And idol worship was a big-time problem, not only in the northern kingdom, but in the southern kingdom as well, but especially in, in the northern kingdom. And as far as the north was concerned, they bordered on Assyria, and invasion from the Assyrians, Assyrian people was a threat all the time. That's the background that uh, we have for um, Isaiah. Before I get any deeper into Isaiah, I want to comment on the, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and their relationship to Isaiah. Uh, this is truly amazing. How many of you have been to Jerusalem? Have you seen, have you seen the Dead Sea Scrolls? The real ones? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that thrilling? Well, anyway, um, one of the things that we have, have learned from the Dead Sea Scrolls relates especially to Isaiah. Um, and you look at the Bible and you think about the validity of it, and people always say, well, that book, it doesn't, that's just a bunch of trash. Somebody has written that more recently, and they've made all these prophecies up. So it sounds like they were made hundreds of years before the events actually happened. Well, that's totally wrong, and we have proved it with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Dead Sea Scrolls uh, go back to around 100 B.C., the oldest documents that we have as far as Scripture is concerned of the Old or the New Testament, of course. But the amazing thing about the Dead Sea Scrolls, and especially in relationship to Isaiah, is that they, they are, have been analyzed and studied over and over and over again, and there is almost a total agreement with what the Dead Sea Scrolls describe as Isaiah, a hundred years before Christ, and the book of Isaiah that we have in our current Bible. Um, the, the accuracy is 95%, which is stunning when you think about it. The errors that they have found are minor things, simply misspellings, or occasionally a scribe will make an error in a character that it's obvious that the pen slipped or whatever, a chisel or whatever he was working with at the time. But anyway, we have amazing documentations relative to the uh, accuracy of Isaiah. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, include 21 copies, partial copies, of Isaiah. Uh, one copy is 75% complete. They've got fragments of other parts of Isaiah. You put all of these together, and we've got just a certification that this book in our Holy Bible is accurate as far as 100 B.C. is concerned, and it has to be accurate on beyond that time. This is a terrific proof that um, our Bible is an accurate representation as we study it today, and that's very reassuring to me and, and to everyone else as well. Another thing that is surprising to me, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls include parts of a lot of the Old Testament. Um, there are quite a few copies of Deuteronomy because apparently the Essene community, the Essenes were the people that uh, studied the Bible very diligently and preserved the Dead Sea Scrolls for us. They hit them. Um, they were very, very concerned about the law, and therefore they kept 
a lot of books of Deuteronomy. They also were very concerned about Isaiah. And this tells me that they were very much interested in the prophecies, the things that we're going to talk about today, of the coming of the Messiah. Isn't that thrilling when you think about a community that was there, that close to the birth of Jesus, being that excited about the coming of the Messiah? And uh, uh, somehow or another, the Pharisees didn't get it. But uh, that little community there apparently did. If you're any student of, of the Bible, you're aware that the book of Isaiah that we have um, covers a period of about 200 years. And no one really thinks that one person wrote it all. The, the book of Isaiah, uh, the entire thing from uh, chapter 1 to chapter 66, covers a period of history of about 200 years. Um, and so it's obvious that the same person didn't write at all, because the dates actually cover that period of time. And most scholars today, there are some that don't believe this, but most <coughs> scholars today believe that uh, Isaiah was really written in three parts. Um, the, the first 39 chapters we attribute to the original Isaiah, and we'll talk about those. Um, that's 1 through 39. But then there's a real break in time and also break in, in the, uh, the wording, the sentence structure, and all of those other things that indicate another group of people wrote the part beginning in chapter uh, 40. Um, the disciple material, I told you last week that I have used the disciple material as a good solid foundation for this series, and that's been tremendously helpful. But the disciple material, uh, if that's popular material that we use in the Methodist Church, Bible study material, um, uh, divides Isaiah into three components. Um, and they refer it to Isaiah 1, that was the original Isaiah. Isaiah 2 was the part that was written in Babylon. And we think that these were scholars that studied Isaiah. Perhaps some of them actually were Isaiah's students. Um, but uh, they were apparently really impressed with the original uh, philosophies and, uh, and prophecies that Isaiah had, and they wanted to continue to use his name. So uh, we think that that part, chapters 40 through, one, 40 through 55, were written during the exile. Um, and the last 10 chapters, 56 through 66, were added after the exile. Um, the interesting part about it, and we'll talk about all three of those sections today, but uh, the prophecies relating to the Messiah are really heavily described in Isaiah 1 and in Isaiah 2. So even the people in the exile uh, were very strong on their project projections, projections of the coming Messiah. And the last part, after the exile, uh, really relates to something that you would almost call revelation. It's the coming world. It's, it's, uh, it's prophecies that haven't yet be, been fulfilled, and things that we'll talk about in our fourth class. But they're, uh, um, they're really uh, a projection of the coming age uh, beyond the Messiah. And it's, it's just amazing to me that in one book, of course it's a long book, uh, Isaiah is a major prophet and it covers a large portion of the Old Testament, but in one book, We've got the description of so much history prophesied there in one document and uh, it's covering so much. Okay, moving on. I meant to mention this up front, but 
If I had asked you before we came to this class, um, and we, we were talking about prophecies relating to the Messiah, what prophet would you have thought that we were going to study? Isaiah. Isaiah. No doubt. No doubt. I think that's what we all identify with. If we had to select one Old Testament prophet that prophesied uh, the coming of the Messiah, uh, we, we would think in terms of Isaiah. Um, and Isaiah's messianic pro prophecies are scattered all through the book. Um, I've chosen to highlight a few chapters there, 7, 9, and 11, and then chapter 2. And you probably want to know, why did I put chapter 2 at the bottom? Well, it's, it's interesting. Uh, if you try to look at Isaiah in terms of chronological order or anything like that, you're, you're lost at the get-go. Um, Isaiah didn't write his book that way, and apparently there were some items that he considered uh, to be paramount, and he put those first. But they are not exactly the ones that we relate to first. So that's I chose to do it that way. I'm the teacher, so what? Uh, the first thing is one that we... Uh, chapter 7 is when Isaiah is talking to King Ahaz, and uh, Ahaz, if, if you'll recall, very much concerned about the uh, invasion from Assyria coming down into the northern kingdom. Um, and uh, they have reason to be concerned. The Assyrians are amassed up there on the border. Um, the prophets have, pre have predicted that they're going to invade, uh, but that wasn't hard to prophesy. I mean, anybody could see it. They were up there with their uh, spears sharpened and their uh, chariots all gassed up and everything else. They were going to come in. And uh, lo and behold, uh, they did. Um, last week we talked about uh, Isaiah and uh, King Hezekiah and the, um, the prophecies relating to the invasion of Jerusalem. And Isaiah accurately predicted that, uh, as we discussed last week. Now, um, that was uh, a prediction relating to a miracle. And, uh, boy, how many prophets do you think can predict a miracle that only could be controlled by God. Isaiah did it. Um, and of course we know that Isaiah also pred predicted the return of the exiles after Babylon's, uh, after the uh, Babylonian exile. A lot of people did that, but they did that a long time before it actually happened. Pretty much a miracle. Okay. Chapter 7. And this gets back to, to King Ahaz, one of the kings that uh, Isaiah served as a prophet. Um, and this was very early in Isaiah's career. And Isaiah, King Ahaz wanted a, a sign. He was trying to, Isaiah was trying to convince him that uh, the southern kingdom would be spared and that he didn't have to worry about the Assyrians. And Isaiah offers him a sign. Um, Ahaz says, I don't need a sign. I can handle this. Well, Isaiah says, I'm going to send you a sign anyway. All right, this is the sign. Therefore the Lord will give you a sign. A virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. One of those favorite Christmas time uh, prophecies. Um, you get a lot of flack about this from the people that want to argue about our uh, prophecies. Uh, the first thing that you hear is that the Hebrew word that we translate as virgin doesn't mean the same thing that we consider a virgin. Um, it simply refers to a young unmarried woman. 
Um, okay, that's, I, I hear that argument. And the next thing that you hear is that if this was supposed to be a sign to King Ahaz, why did we have to wait 600 years for it to happen? Okay, that's, that's a valid argument. But when you combine this forecast, this prophecy, with everything else in Isaiah, it's hard to think that he's talking about anything except the coming Messiah. I mean, it all relates to everything else. It all links together. If you skip around a little bit in Isaiah, as you have to do if you pull these, uh, these prophecies out. So, as far as I'm concerned, it's got to be the Messiah. Another thing that we refer to as, as giving the, uh, the, the, uh, the child the name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, that's God with us. What more significant uh, description or name could you have for Jesus, the coming Messiah? Um, well, maybe it wasn't meant to be a sign for Ahaz. The fact is that it was 600 years later. But as far as a sign to the Hebrew nation, it was certainly a sign. It's a miracle that hasn't happened before and hasn't happened since. Okay, in chapter 9, we, we read another one. This is where we talk about the wonderful counselor. All right, chapter 9 picks up this way. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Um, and he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time and forever. Forever. Boy, who could last forever? But we know that Jesus did. Um, pretty amazing words when you, when you think about it. Um, and then we go on to chapter 11 where uh, he ties in um, the coming of the Messiah with the house of David. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. He will raise the banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered peoples of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Wow. Okay, now let's go back to, to the second chapter of Isaiah, and this is what he's talking about, the vision of the future. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised up above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we will walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations, and will settle disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation nor will they train of war anymore. Boy, we're a long way away from there, especially if you look at the news in Libya and, and, and everything else. 
we're a long way from there. But this is, this is the promise. And uh, someday we'll get there. I believe that the Lord will not let us down. Okay. Um, let's move on now to the next segment, um, chapter 40 in Isaiah. Isaiah 2, according to um, the disciple material. Um, but keep in mind, everything that we said so far was in the first part of Isaiah. It's attributed to, if you'll pardon me, the real Isaiah, the original one, the, the man himself. And this next part was added by um, the disciples, uh, his disciples in, um, in Babylon at the time. Chapter 40 gives us words of hope and encouragement. And these are the words that we really frequently identify with the exiles because um, they are in exile. Some of them are pretty prosperous, by the way, and they can be comfortable in Babylon. Some of them stayed there a very long time. But still, they needed encouragement and hope because the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed. And that was Solomon's temple. We talked about that last week. How in the world were the Hebrew people going to react after the temple was destroyed? And we know that they reacted very well under God's leadership and the leadership of a lot of prophets. Okay, here's, here's the part that I want to read in chapter 40. Comfort, comfort, my people, says the Lord. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her, son, her sin has been paid for. Do you know, do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. God's smarter than us. He still gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They shall mount up on the wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not grow faint. Um, strong words, familiar words. Um, I want to share this with you. How many of you remember Phyllis Cooper? Now, moved to Florida. She's still down there. Before Phyllis left, are you shaking your head, Mark Jane? She's in New Jersey. Oh, is she in New Jersey now? Okay. Anyway, before Phyllis left, she, she did this needlepoint. And it, it, it hangs in my office, and I am very, very proud of it. There are times when I grow weary, and there are times when I get discouraged, and I look up there, and I see that eagle, and I think about Phyllis, and I read that scripture, and it gives me a lot of inspiration. Isn't that pretty? Okay. Uh, again, now we're talking about the... There we go. Um, continuing to talk now about the prophecies in Second Isaiah. Um, the writers of, of Second Isaiah foresaw the, the fall of Babylon. Um, they saw that Persia was gaining strength, and uh, um, they thought that this would lead to the, the freedom of the exiles and allowing the exiles to return to Jerusalem. And this is what they say in chapter 43. I am God and there is no other. Now, you need to talk about, think about this. 
The Babylons, while they were relatively um, kind to the Hebrews, they allowed them to worship in their own way, and that's very, very good. But the Babylons themselves were heathens. Um, they worshiped their own idols, and this is sort of what they're talking about here in, in chapter 43. Uh, the writers felt like that they had to point out that our God is superior to any of these idols that the Babylons might be worshiping. This is what he said. I am God, and there is no one other. I am God, and there is no other like me. I made known the end, of the, the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I was God before, I'm God now, and I'm God in the future. My purpose will stand, and I will do as I please. From the east I summons a bird of prey, from a far-off land a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have planned, that I will do. Love it. Um, the far-off land is, uh, is, um, is Persian. And the bird of prey is a man called um, Cyrus the Great. It's interesting. Now, when you think about the geography there, uh, Persia is the country that we call Iran today. And Cyrus the Great, that was uh, developing an empire there and um, led the invasion into Babylon that wound up freeing the Hebrew people. Not a man of God. He was a worshiper of idols, but God used him as an instrument to help the Hebrew people. To me, that says a lot. Um, it, uh, it's, it, it can be an inspiration to all of us that perhaps somebody over there now that we might consider very, very evil, and goodness knows there's a lot of evil going on over there, Perhaps God could use some person over there to turn this thing around. Isn't that exciting? Okay. All that happened in 539 B.C., just exactly as it was projected. Um, again, it's, it's inspiring scriptures, um, and, but it was an event that was relatively easy to prophesy. Um, uh, you could see that Persia was developing into a great nation and that they were potentially going to invade Babylon at some point in time. Okay, Isaiah 43 is a description of the coming Messiah, and this is what's referred to as the servant song. And I hope that we'll have time to discuss this next week. It's amazing when we think about all of these scriptures relating to the Messiah. He's always described as a servant king. He's always described as a servant Messiah. Now, we know in our studies of um, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Hebrew people at the time of Jesus, they were not looking for a servant Messiah. They were looking for a political king. And somehow they got the story distorted. Um, and if we want to talk about a servant king as opposed to a political king, um, we can spend some time doing that, I hope, next week. But the bottom line, um, the people that I have read, and we'll mention names, indicate that the Messiah was actually both. He was a servant to all mankind, but he's a king of our hearts. And uh, we hope he'll be the king of the, of the, of the nations. 
And that uh, sort of answers that question, but it surely didn't satisfy the Pharisees at the time of Jesus. Okay. Um, and here, this is a servant song. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. Again, we're talking about a spirit now, and that brings impressions of Holocaust. Uh, not Holocaust, <laughs> Pentecost is what I meant to say. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and the new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I will announce them to you. God has a plan, and when he's ready, he'll tell us about it. Okay, uh, the most famous of the messianic forecast and prophecies in Isaiah um, come from chapter 52 and 53. And I've asked Martha to read that for us if she's got that. Yeah, come on up here. Yeah, come on up here. Is that good? See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness, so will he sparkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one for whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we were healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the head of the living, for the transgression of, transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death thought he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, and though the Lord makes, his guilt, makes him a gift offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. 
After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. It's hard to get around that, isn't it? Um, there's, there's so much there. Um, the, the suffering on the cross, the, the fact that, uh, that he had a grave am- among the, the sinners, the thieves, but then he had a rich tomb that was provided for him. And the fact that, that uh, God uh, brought him to, to light after the death, it's all there. It's, it, it, it is just absolutely amazing. Um, I've always been wondered about the tense of this description because it describes it as an event that has already happened. And, of course, we know that it's a, a prophecy. Um, and the explanation for that is that it was this was a the description of a vision that they saw in the future, but because they had seen it, they were describing it as an event that happened. Did that make any sense at all? Yeah. Well, that's uh, uh, that's the way it was described. Uh, that was the way I understood it. Um, Mike Miller, um, as most of you know, is is about the closest thing to a to a scholar that I've ever come across. But uh, Mike said that there was a very difficult translation. Um, uh, that's not exactly what I meant to say. It was very difficult to translate from the original Hebrew um, because the, in the Hebrew language there's very um, little tense. Uh, you know, we've got all kinds of tenses that we use in our expressions all day long. The Hebrews didn't have that. They had... Um, had two tenses, and I don't remember which two they are. It seemed like past and present. Um, but anyway, um, Bruce, your name, your head is not is 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 nodding. Do you agree with that? Have you remember coming across that somewhere? Well, that's what Mike told me, and uh, and that that may explain some of this. But uh, that that's just a minor argument as far as I'm concerned. There's so much truth. There's so much convincing things. So many convincing things there. Now we get back to what I said uh, uh, 10 minutes ago, 15 minutes ago, um, about it all linking together. Uh, Isaiah is just one package of, of, of all of these prophecies. And you may want to pick pieces with this and that and all of it, but when you put it all together, you say, hey, look, this has got to be a true story. This has got to be something that has got some real significance to it. Okay, moving on to Daniel. We mentioned that Daniel... Uh, was among the very first people that were hauled off to Babylon in the first group, um, uh, 608, something like that, 607. Um, and we think that probably he was uh, just a youth at the time. Um, and we know that, uh, that, that, uh, that Daniel um, uh, went on to be a, uh, a teller of dreams or a Describer of dreams, he was uh, a part of Nebuchadnezzar's court um, and uh, worked there. A pretty smart guy, apparently. But anyway, um, we're not going to look at all of Daniel. It is a difficult book. Um, it's apocalyptic in a lot of cases. Um, and 
a little bit difficult to understand. Somebody mentioned earlier when they came in here today that it was a difficult book, and it it is indeed. But I do want to highlight just a couple of parts of it. Um, one of them is pretty meaningful to me. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Um, of course, the reason that's important is that these are the words that Jesus used to describe himself, the Son of Man part of it. And I've always been puzzled about those words because Son, son of Man um, doesn't sound exactly like uh, somebody that was terribly spiritual. I mean, uh, son, son of Man, we all had fathers. Uh, and uh, But still, these are the words that Jesus used to describe himself and we think that they were relating directly back to these Hebrew scriptures in Daniel. And then you read that description and you understand the power that goes with those words. Uh, the fact that um, he was coming down from the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days, that can only be God, and was led into his, his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and Men of every language worshipped him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, his kingdom that will never be destroyed. Um, pretty amazing stuff. And, uh, of course, Jesus' description of himself, his association of himself with those words, are described in three of the four Gospels. Um, so, got, got to be some, some strength there. Okay, let's look at chapter 9. Now, this, this may bother you a little bit. That's, that's, that's okay. But um, chapter 9 is where we get into a part about another part of Daniel's vision. And he says that in this dream, he was visited by the angel Gabriel. Now, this guy Gabriel gets around. He's all through our Bible. I'd like to know more about Gabriel. But anyway, Gabriel visited him. And he left him a message. God's appointed one, that's the Messiah, is to come in 77 years. 77's years. After the decree to restore and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Alright, 77 years, 77's years, 70 times 70, um, 449 years. After the decree to restore and rebuild the temple. Well, gee, when Daniel wrote this, the decree to restore the temple had not been issued. So we got a little bit of double prophecy here. Daniel's vision from Gabriel says that um, 490 years from the time you get a decree to rebuild the temple, the Messiah is coming. Jerry, you with me, Jerry? Yep. Okay. Okay. That. That. I'm. I'm I, I thought you might. I'm multiplying seventy times seven. Did I get it right? Four hundred ninety. What did I say? Forty-nine. Forty-nine. 
All right, that's good. Thank you, Jerry. Anything else? Okay, you, you, all right, good, good. All right, we, we look at that and calculate the time. Nehemiah was given the uh, decree to go back into Jerusalem and rebuild the city in 445 B.C. 490 years from that would come up with, uh, with 45 A.D., not far from the coming of the Messiah and the death of the Messiah. But wait a minute now, it gets better than that. If you look at the Hebrew calendar, they only had 360 days in a year. You make that correction, and the date moves back to 38 A.D. And we think that uh, Jesus was crucified around 33, 34. Wow! Doesn't that sort of hit you between the eyes? Um, I, I, I don't get too excited about these numbers because you can play tricks with numbers all day long. And a lot of people have tried to make play tricks with these numbers. But one person feels like that, that it was pretty significant. I talked about that gentleman last week, a fellow named Michael Brown. Michael Brown, if you will recall, unlike his name, was raised in a very strict Jewish home in Brooklyn, about as Jewish as you could get. don't know how he got a name like Michael Brown, but he did. Um, anyway, he's now a Christian. He studied Hebrew thoroughly as a doctor. He has a Ph.D. in the Hebrew language. Um, studied all of these things very, very thoroughly. He was really impressed by this particular piece of Daniel because it ties down dates so precisely. He's also impressed with all of these other uh, prophecies that we have discussed and so many others that are in the, in the Bible. And uh, he is, his ministry right now is going around to Hebrew congregations and trying to convince them that, hey, look, uh, this Messiah was real. He makes this statement. If you believe in the Hebrew scriptures as presented in our Bible, and if he's talking to a Hebrew congregation, you can imagine the, the, the heads are not again. And if you seriously look at the prophecies that are included in those scriptures, you can come to no other conclusion. Jesus Christ was the Messiah that we have been anticipating all this time. There can be no other. Um, I think that's pretty serious stuff. Uh, this guy obviously is a scholar, and he writes very scholarly material, believe me. Um, and if he's convinced, uh, I think it says a lot. It certainly impressed me enough to get started in this lesson and to include references to him in it. Okay, one more little bit. Let's talk about Micah, just a minute. Micah goes back to the time of Isaiah, and uh, uh, they were contemporaries. Uh, Isaiah attracted a whole lot more attention because some people think that Isaiah had royal blood. Anyway, Isaiah was close to all of the kings. He was familiar with being around the courts. Um, Micah, on the other hand, was not. Micah was out in the boondocks. He and, he and, uh, and Isaiah were talking about the same thing. 
You've got to stop worshiping those idols, guys. <laughs> the Lord is going to be against you. You are going to be suffering through invasion if you don't get your act in order. But anyway, Micah came up with some significant prophecies relating to the Messiah. One in particular is we typically talk about. It goes something like this. But you, Bethlehem, Arapha, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Okay. So, the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is the sticks. Bethlehem, if you go to Bethlehem today, it's because of the tourist business over there. It seems like a fairly uh, nice-sized place. But back then, Bethlehem was just barely a village. To project that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem was really sticking your neck out. But he did it, and it happened. Pretty amazing. But there's uh, one other part of here, and this, this will carry us into next week. If you're willing to come back, I hope you will. The last part of Micah goes this way. One who will be ruler over Israel, one whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Okay, ancient times. Could that mean King David? Well, a lot of people think that. That would be about five or six hundred years, uh, or be longer than that from before it happened, about a thousand years before it happened. Um, and, of course, we know that uh, Christ was um, uh, David's lineage. But suppose we go back a little bit further than that. Suppose we go back to Genesis, ancient of days, and something really ancient, beginning of time. Now, all of you that have been around me for a while know that I feel like that God was telling us about the coming Messiah way back from the very beginning. And next week we're going to talk about part of that. If you'll come back, we're going to talk about the prophecies that are not related to any prophet. They're prophecies that are sprinkled throughout our Old Testament. So I'm going back to Genesis and we'll get into that. But primarily we're going to talk about two Psalms. Um, Psalm uh, 22 and uh, Psalm 110. Um, and if you would like, if you would like, you can take a look at Psalms 22 and 110 uh, before you come to the class next week. It's uh, pretty stunning stuff to me. Before I put this lesson series together, um, if you had asked me about prophecies, I would have thought about Isaiah, thought about the prophets, and vaguely thought about what they were all about. But after working on this series and seeing that the prophets and the prophecies are scattered all through our Bible, I am convinced, as you saw last week, God has a plan for us. God's plan will not fail. And if you look at the Bible carefully, that plan is described from one end to the other. You just got to be sharp enough to pick up on it. Let's close with a prayer. Holy God. You've brought us together again, and we praise you for that. We love you, and we just praise you for your faithfulness and your word, the strength, the wisdom that you have provided 
We love you for that. And we just, it just excites us all that we can come to worship a God who is smarter than us, does have a plan for us, and promises us a plan that will not fail. We love you. We praise you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.